0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: Thank you for listening to this CNN podcast. You can subscribe to your favorite CNN podcast with iTunes, with the Apple Podcast app on iOS, or with Stitcher if you're on Android. And good evening, everyone. In just three days, Republicans here are going to go to the polls, and as history as any guide. Saturday, South Carolina primary will make some campaigns and break others. It matters that much, which is why tonight matters so much. For three candidates, one last chance for voters to ask the kind of questions face-to-face to help them decide.
2: tonight a conversation with three leading republicans in south carolina they're facing the voters and fighting for every last vote if you ever want to fall in love with the american people run for president marco rubio rising ted cruz talking tough the time for games is over ben carson running behind hoping to rise above the fray and the rest of the field i think i can win south carolina three contenders men of faith In a state where faith runs deep and the faithful vote. But it's not all sweetness and light. South Carolina is a state that knows raw politics. He's now literally just making things up. Marco Rubio hitting Cruz. Cruz hitting back.
0: Whenever anyone points out their record, they simply start screaming liar, liar, liar.
2: Three contenders in a state where manners matter, but winning matters more. Just days before the first Southern primary, at the end of a campaign like we, and the voters, have never seen before. This is an Anderson Cooper 360 CNN Republican Town Hall. Voters seeking answers, a chance to drive the debate, before making a choice that could make history.
1: Good evening. Welcome to the Old Cigar Warehouse in Greenville in South Carolina. What a night ahead. We are here tonight with just three days to go until primary days. Just three days left to decide, yet a lot of voters in this state remain undecided. So tonight Senators Rubio and Cruz and Dr. Carson are here with voters and viewers for a conversation. Tomorrow night I'll be with John Kasich, Jeb Bush and Donald Trump, the voters and I not too far from here in Columbia, South Carolina. I want to welcome our viewers watching the United States, watching here in South Carolina and around the world on CNN International. I also want to extend a warm welcome to all our servicemen and women who are watching the American Forces Network and to those who are listening on the Westwood One Radio Network and on CNN Channel 116 on Sirius XM. In the audience tonight here in Greenville, people who tell us they will be participating in Saturday's Republican primary, some decided, some undecided. We asked audience members to come up with their own questions, which we reviewed to make sure that they don't overlap. I'll ask some questions as well, but tonight we really hope this is about South Carolina voters getting to know the candidates. So, let's get started. Joining us first tonight is retired neurosurgeon, Dr. Ben Carson. Welcome.
3: Hey, welcome. Nice to see you.
1: Nice to see you. How's it going? Very good. Good. Um, I want to start. Just you, obviously a retired neurosurgeon. Uh, you've been running now. You've been out on the campaign trail for ten months. What's harder, brain surgery or politics?
3: Brain surgery is a lot harder. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, the interesting thing that I've discovered about uh, politics, good things and bad things. It's been wonderful having an opportunity to meet so many people across the country, and hear what their concerns are. Uh, it, it hadn't been that great, uh, you know, dealing with. Uh, the press. Are you looking at me?
1: Well, that's what really tonight is about. It's really you interacting with the voters. I'm just going to ask a couple of questions, and then okay. we're going to, have to turn it over really to the voters. Okay. Um, I want to ask you just about a couple of items in the news. As you know, uh, the government is trying to unlock the cell phone of one of the terrorists in San Bernardino. They've been unable to do that. They've now gotten a, a judge to, uh, to ask Apple or to try to order Apple to uh, create new operating software that would allow them uh, essentially a back door to, to open up and get access. Do you think... Apple should be forced to do that? Because Apple says that's going to violate not only privacy rights, but it's going to make everybody's cell phone vulnerable, potentially to hackers.
3: Sure. Well, you know, the the interesting thing is, I I think that Apple and probably a lot of other people don't necessarily trust the government these days. And uh, there's probably very good reason for people not to trust the government. But we're going to have to get over that, because right now we're faced with tremendous threats and individuals, radical jihadists, who want to destroy us. And we're going to have to weigh these things one against the other. Um, I believe that what we need is a public-private partnership uh, when it comes to uh, all of these technical things and cybersecurity because we're all at risk in a very significant way. So it's going to be a matter of people learning to trust each other, which means Apple needs to sit down with trustworthy members of the government. And that may have to wait until the next election. I don't know. But we'll see. They need to sit down with people they can trust and hammer out a relationship.
1: Um, If you were president right now and you just had 11 months left in your term, would you nominate someone to fill Justice Scalia's seat?
3: I probably would. I probably would take the opportunity uh, to nominate someone. Doesn't necessarily mean that that person is going to be uh, acted on or confirmed. But uh, why not do it? But here's the real problem. You know, the Supreme Court, a very important part of uh, our governing system, was originally intended to consist of jurists who were people who loved America people who fully understood our Constitution and were there to make sure that America preserved its constitutional traditions. It was not supposed to be a partisan group. It has become very partisan. So as a result, uh, everything that is done surrounding it depicts the confirmation hearings, deciding on whether to actually make the vote, all of it has become partisan in reaction to what has happened. Does it mean that we're forever gone? No. I think it means that these are things that we're going to have to start looking at. We're going to have to start figuring out how in the world do we once again get back to a reasonable judicial system. We do not have that now. We have overreaching. We have a Congress that, for some reason, has become the peanut gallery, and just watching what the executive branch and the judiciary do and uh, not really stepping up to correct some of the incorrect decisions that have been made by the Supreme Court. How would a a
1: President Carson pick judges? Would you have a a litmus test, as people often say?
3: Yes, uh, the litmus litmus test would be their life. You know, I would look back at what they have done throughout their lives, what kind of rulings they have had throughout their lives, uh, what kind of associations they have had, you can tell a lot more about how a person has lived their life than you can with uh, you know, a f- series of interviews, which they have been prepped for, which they know exactly how to answer. We've been burned by those kinds of things before. So, so you uh, wouldn't
1: necessarily have a list of, of questions on abortion, on whatever el- other issues.
3: I think I could find out what their opinions are by looking back at their life. You know, the Bible says in Matthew 7:20 by their fruit you will know them.
1: Uh, I want to have you meet uh, a voter. Her name is Jessica Fuller. She works in advertising. She's a voter here in Greenville. She says she is still undecided, so you could pick up a vote right here tonight.
3: Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome, Jessica, go ahead. Hi, welcome to Greenville. Thank you.
0: Um, Dr. Carson, how do you reconcile the differences between traditional Christian values, specifically caring for the least of these, and current GOP stances on social issues such as welfare and subsidies for the poor?
3: Well, when you say current GOP, um, I'm part of the GOP, and let me tell you what my stance is. My stance is that we, the people, have the responsibility to take care of the indigent in our society. It's not the government's job. And uh, if you can read the Constitution all you want, it never says that it is the government's job. And I think that's where we've gotten confused. In the old days of America, when communities were separated by hundreds of miles. Uh, why were they able to thrive? Because if it was harvest time and the farmer was up in the tree picking apples and he fell out and broke his leg, everybody pitched in and harvested his crops for him. If somebody got killed by a bear, everybody took care of their family. So we have a history of taking care of each other. Now, for some strange reason, starting sort of in the 20s with Woodrow Wilson, the government started getting involved in everything. It kept. Growing, metastasizing. By the time we got to the 60s, LBJ was saying, we, the government, are going to eliminate poverty. Now, how'd that work out? You know, $19 trillion later, 10 times more people on food stamps, more poverty, more welfare, broken homes, out of wedlock births, crime, incarceration. Everything is not only worse, it's much worse. And that's because it's not their job. It's our job. I wish the government would read the Constitution. I think that would probably help quite a bit. Uh, And maybe they did read it, and maybe they got confused when they read the preamble, which says one of the duties is to promote the general welfare. They probably thought that meant putting everybody on welfare. But in (laughs) fact, (laughs) I don't think it means that at all. And what we need to do is level the playing field. But the government can play a very important role in facilitating what we the people do. Let me give you one quick example. You know, look at all the out of wedlock births uh, that are going on, particularly in our inner cities. Uh, I've been speaking at uh, a lot of the uh, nonprofit organizations that support organizations that support these women so that they don't have an abortion, so that they have the baby. But usually their education stops when they have that baby. Now, if you not only support them through that pregnancy, But now provide child care for them so they can go back to school and get their GED or their associate's degree or their bachelor's degree or their master's degree, learn how to take care of themselves, teach their baby how to take care of themselves so that you break the cycle of dependency. That's the only way we're going to get through these programs. That is true compassion. Having people become dependent on others is not compassion at all. Dr. Carson, I are watching.
1: to this is Katie Busby. She works for the Chamber of Commerce here in Greenville, and she says she is undecided. Katie, welcome.
2: Dr. Carson, I know you'd probably agree that one of the biggest issues facing our country is national security threats. So with groups like ISIS and the Middle East becoming more and more unstable, you're running as a candidate that has never governed before. Are you qualified to be commander-in-chief, and are you qualified to deal with these national security threats?
3: Uh, I obviously think so. I wouldn't be running uh, for president. You know, it's it's the political class that has tried to convince everybody that they're the only ones who can solve our problems. But the fact of the matter is our system was designed for citizen statesmen. It was designed for people who've had real-life experiences and then can transfer that to government work. You know, I can guarantee you that I've had more 2 a.m. phone calls than anybody else, all the rest of them put together, had to make life-and-death decisions, had to derive information frequently from interns or residents who didn't know a lot, but you still got to manage to get the right information, make the right decisions, put together teams, complex teams, to accomplish things that have never before been accomplished before. You know, I think what we really need are people who know how to solve problems, not people who know how to talk. You know, we, we can all talk, but we can't all solve problems. And what I think you need to look at is the course of a person's life. Go back and see what kinds of things have they had to face, what kind of things have they had to overcome. And, uh, you know, the people who, who say, well, you've never run anything, you don't know how to do anything, maybe none of the things that they want to do, but I tell you, it does take skill to take You know, the Division of Pediatric Neurosurgery, when I became chief, it wasn't even on the map. And to take it to number one in the country, according to U.S. News and World Report, by 2008, that's not something that's done lightly. You know, to start, you know, the Carson Scholars Fund. These are things that are outside of medicine. Um, And people said, you can't start another scholarship program. There are tens of thousands of them. But we started it. It's in all 50 states, has won major national awards that are only given to one organization in the country. Obviously, you have to know how to do things. You know, I've spent 18 years on the board of Kellogg, 16 years on the board of Costco, learned a tremendous amount about business, both domestically and internationally, uh, and a lot of things that people who are politicians who are running have never done. So I think you have to really look at what a person accomplishes in their life and not whether they have a specific pedigree uh, of the political class who thinks that they rule us when in fact this country is up for and by the people. And it's we the people who need to assume once again the pinnacle position.
1: Dr. Carson, this is uh, Alexander Sexton. He works in the defense industry right here in Greenville. He says he is also undecided but leaning in your favor. Welcome.
2: <laughs> Dr. Carson, thank you for your time. You. Uh, like many Americans, I've only recently felt the need to own a, a gun, and, uh, you know, right now the world is in a, a dangerous place. So uh, what is your plan to preserve my rights to own a
3: gun and also to protect the American people? Sure. Well. You know, the the Second Amendment is there for a very good reason. It was so that the the people could assist the government in case of an invasion. More importantly, it was so that the people could protect themselves in case the government itself ever became tyrannical and tried to rule the people. So we've had guns for hundreds of years and we've been free for hundreds of years. I think there may be a correlation there. you know, I think, you know, after the San Bernardino attacks and the Paris attacks, you know, the current administration, their ideal of solving the problem was to take guns away from the people. Somehow that's going to solve your problem because there are terrorists trying to kill you. Take your guns away. It makes absolutely no sense. What they should be doing is offering free classes in gun safety to all the citizens who want to take it so they can protect themselves. It is the fundamental right that we have to be able to protect ourselves, but we also need to, to, to take safety into account. And as long as we do that in a, in a reasonable way, I think your right, my right, all of our rights should be preserved.
1: I, uh, I just want to follow up on, on Alexander's question. He was saying he, he's gotten a gun for the first time in his life. Have you ever, do you own a gun? Have you ever felt the need to have a gun?
3: Yes. I don't know that I, I felt the need to have a gun, but I like having a gun. It's a nice thing to have. You know, I, I, I have multiple marksmanship awards uh, from ROTC, and uh, I'm very much in favor of uh, preserving those rights.
1: Uh, I want you to meet uh, Vicki Burns. She's a retired small business owner. She says she's leaning toward Governor Bush, but she has not yet made up her mind. OK. okay. Hi, Dr. Carson. Hi. My question for you is, if you are elected president, what would be your big idea? In the past, we've had great presidents that have united our country with programs such as the space program, the WPC, um, and we are in much need of a big idea.
3: Well, I have multiple big ideas. But uh, here's one of the things that I really want to get across to the country. We have only 330 million people. Sounds like a lot of people. But China has 1.4 billion people. India has 1.1 billion people. We have to compete with them on the world stage, which means we can't afford to waste any of our people. So it doesn't make sense for us to have 20 plus percent of people who enter high school dropping out of high school in the technological age in the information age it makes no sense for us to have five percent of the world's population and 25 percent of the inmates and we have to reorient ourselves in a way that we keep those things from happening uh, because for every one of those young people we can keep from going down that path of self-destruction that's one more person that we don't have to be afraid of or protect our family from. One more person that we have, don't have to pay for in the penal system or the welfare system. One more tax-paying, productive member of society who may discover the cure for cancer or a new energy source. We can't afford to throw away any of our people. That's a big idea.
1: This is uh, Richard Leland. He's a family physician right here in Greenville, and he also says he's undecided. Richard, welcome.
3: Thank you. Dr. Carson, in the event
2: that you did not win the presidency, but one of your fellow Republicans did,
3: if they were to ask you to consider serving as the Surgeon General or head of the Department of Health and Human Services with your passion and your ability, would you be willing at some point to consider this? Well, i got to tell you, I'm not looking for a job, you know. Uh, <laughs> you know, after 15. 15- well, there is one job you're looking for. <laughs> <laughs> after 15,000 operations and a very arduous uh, career, uh, I'm definitely not just looking for something to do. Uh, I feel that our country is on the precipice, and it's about to go over the edge. And if we continue with politics as usual, Democrats or Republicans, we are going to go over that edge. And I think we have to reach down and recognize that we can't just tinker around the edges. We're going to have to have some real ideas here, ideas of how we get that economic engine, which is the most dynamic and powerful economic engine that the world has ever known, rolling again. I've got good ideas about that, bencarson.com. And I can explain them if anybody asks me that question. But uh, you also, when we look at what's happening to our nation, uh, in terms of our vision for who we are. I think we're starting to lose sight of who we are. We are so busily giving away our identity, our values, and our principles for the sake of political correction, correctness that we don't know who we are. And the Bible says, without a vision, the people perish. So I have a vision that I think I share with a lot of we the people. And that's the direction I want to go in. It would be very difficult for me to serve in an administration that didn't have that same philosophy. Thank you. We're going to take a short break, Dr. Carson. We're going to have more questions
1: from the audience. for Dr. Carson, when we come back, you're watching the CNN Republican Town Hall from Greenville, South Carolina. Marco Rubio and Senator Ted Cruz are also coming up. We'll be back in a moment.
0: Hey, this is Ryan Nobles, and thank you so much for listening to CNN Podcasts. I'm on the campaign trail full-time for CNN and in a weekly podcast for you. The podcast is called Running Mate. Every Friday, I'll
1: bring you in-depth interviews and important guests and analysis from the Running Mate team. It's not on TV. This is an original show exclusively for podcast listeners. So search for CNN Running Mate in iTunes or on your favorite podcast app and join me for the 2016 presidential campaign
3: so that we understand where it's coming from. And quite frankly, we have some pretty substantial offensive cyber capabilities. Our administration is reluctant to use them. I would not be reluctant to use them. If somebody hit us from another country with a cyber attack, they would not do it a second time, believe me. And people think that I'm nice, and I am nice, but I also want to protect our people and uh, protect if if you stand up to people who are doing these things, it makes uh, them much less likely to continue. But again, by having a public-private partnership, being able to tap into all of our resources, I think we have a much better uh, opportunity to defend ourselves and to put up the kinds of defenses that can keep morphing so that they will not be able to keep up with us. Americans have always been incredibly innovative, and if we can release that innovation again and get rid of some of the things that dampen that innovation, I think we'll stay far ahead of the competition. Thank you
1: for your question. Appreciate it. I want you to meet. Jillian Roger she's a, a stay-at-home mom she says she is also still undecided Julie okay. Hello dr. Carson
2: um, I do appreciate your mild manner nature in, in this campaign um, however if you, the, <laughs> if you are the if you are the Republican nominee how do you plan to not or how do you plan to get your message out
1: over a boisterous Democrat?
2: Which
3: boisterous Democrat would that be? (laughs) Now, uh, quite simply, what I have discovered, you know, as a pediatric neurosurgeon and as someone who dealt with lots of children, I had a program at the hospital where I bring in 800 students at a time, frequently elementary students. And you would say, How are you going to be able to speak to 800 elementary students and keep them quiet? You know what? by speaking softly, because then they would say, oh, what's he saying, and they would shut up. Uh, (laughs) It actually worked extremely well. But, But really the key is not so much the volume with which you speak, but it's the content of what you say. That's what's going to make the difference. And I think the American people are smart enough to be able to understand bluster and rhetoric versus truth and when it comes to the general election uh, you know people who are running around saying things like free college for everyone it'll be very easy to counter that by simply educating people as to the actual financial condition of our nation and uh, that's not done you know I think uh, Margaret Thatcher probably said it best she said socialism is great until you run out of other people's money. And that's exactly what would happen when we would explain that to people and I think they would understand. So I look forward to such a challenge. Of course, a question, just a <laughs> follow up on that.
1: It's not just obviously in a general election, you've been on a stage with some pretty uh, boisterous folks uh, the last <laughs> couple of months, I'm not gonna name any names, but do you, wh- what are you thinking when you're on a stage in those debates? What is going through your mind?
3: Well, I'll tell you, honestly, what was going to my mind is, will these guys in any way remember what happened in 2012 when they tried to tear each other apart, which was probably the only reason that President Obama was able to win re-election with a record that no one could have won on? So we have to stop finding ways to snatch defeat from the jaws of victory.
1: Do you have a candidate you would prefer to run against in a general? Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton?
3: I would relish running against either one of them. Right. It would not be a problem. Right.
1: <laughs> Our next question uh, comes from, oh, I'm sorry. We're going to go for some of the personal questions here. Uh, actually, if you would just okay. uh, take a seat here. Um, so was it, was it hard for you to give up surgery? I mean, you trained for this for so long. You were an excellent surgeon by all accounts.
3: Uh, some people say I was just an okay surgeon, <laughs> but uh, no. Um, I miss very much what medicine used to be. I do not miss what it has become. And I think you will find, if you talk to a lot of people in the medical profession, that they're not very happy today.
1: Because they're not able to spend time with patients? Or... Uh,
3: there, there are so many new rules and regulations. Um, and yes, the epics and all the various things that you have to type in. You don't even have a chance to look at the patient. There's a lot of information that you can gain from just looking at somebody when you're talking to them, which is an essential part of medical care that's being lost. So uh, I, that's the reason that you know I've denoted a different type of system uh, that actually costs less than either the current so-called Affordable Care Act Uh, or the system that we had before that, uh, that provides excellent care for everybody, including the indigent, and doesn't have any second-class citizens. We have enough money to do it. We spend almost twice as much per capita on health care as many other nations that have much better access. And we have so much disruption and inefficiency in our system that can be easily corrected.
1: We know President Obama plays golf. We know uh, former President George W. Bush uh, uh, paints now. He used to clear a brush, probably still does, out in Texas. What do you do to relax?
3: Play pool. Play pool. I I love to play pool. Are you competitive when you play pool? I like to win. (laughs) 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 And and I'll tell you, uh, it relaxes me. Uh, When I would come home from uh, a, a busy day of surgery, I would shoot pool. And my wife, who didn't know how to play pool, learned how to play pool, and has become an excellent player. (laughs) She's good competition. If I mess up, she will beat me. (laughs) What
1: what sort of music do you listen to? Uh,
3: I primarily like classical music, uh, particularly Baroque music. Did you listen to that when you did surgery? Absolutely. All the residents knew when they came and did their pediatric neurosurgery a rotation that they would also learn classical music. I remember one resident, I would always ask him questions. He would always say, that's the 1812 overture. And he says, I know I'm going to be right one time. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Dr. Carson, it's a pleasure. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. Dr. Ben Carson. Thank you. When we come back, Senator Marco Rubio takes the stage and takes your questions. We'll be right back.